This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a podcast series of the New Books Network hosted by the New Books in Political Science channel. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University. As listeners to prior episodes know, in this series, we're tacking back and forth between texts on the philosophies and methodologies of interpretive political and social science and exemplary studies. And this episode, we're featuring Lee Ann Fuji's Interviewing in Social Science Research, a Relational Approach, published in 2018 as part of the Routledge series on interpretive methods. Leanne Fuji was a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, who wrote widely on political violence and did extensive interview-based research on the Rwandan genocide that was published most notably in her 2009 book, Killing Neighbours. As many listeners will know, Leanne died unexpectedly in March 2018, just as interviewing social science research was going to print. Her death came as a terrible shock and a tremendous loss to so many friends and colleagues. As the tributes poured in, I think we all recognised just how greatly the sum of Leanne Fucci's life and work exceeded the many parts of it to which we had variously been privy. She left us literally mid-conversation, and these were conversations that we had so much wanted to keep having with her that her abrupt departure left us quite literally at a loss for words. Though the significance of her scholarship, the depth and density of her intellectual calibre were already well recognised in her too short lifetime. The importance of Leanne's work, of how she conducted herself as a scholar and engaged with others, has continued to be acknowledged and celebrated through, among other things, conference panels that she'd organised but was unable to attend, the establishment of an award in her name for interpretive study of political violence, and a travel grant for diversity at the annual meeting of the American Political Science Association, though Leanne herself might have preferred to call it a travel grant against white supremacy. But her legacy also continues to be felt, as it does with all outstanding professors, in the community of new and emerging researchers that she nurtured and mentored. And so it's my great pleasure to have joining me today to discuss her last book before her death, though not her last book, two of Leanne's former students, Ariane Glass and Jessica Sudogo. Ari is today an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University and Jessica is just about to go from a postdoctoral fellowship at Georgetown to an assistant professorship at the University of Amsterdam. Welcome to you both, and congratulations, Jessica, on your new appointment. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. 
Before we turn to the book, Jessica, Ari, I'd like to invite you to begin with some reflections on your experience as students of Leanne. How did she become your instructor? Tell us about how she helped shape your way of thinking and being in the world as scholars and as persons. Leanne was a member of my doctoral committee at the University of Toronto. I first met her when I inconsistently audited her seminar on ethnic and racial violence, but I really got to know her more when I took her qualitative methods class and then more informally over meals. As you mentioned, Nick, Leanne was very intentional about making political science a more inclusive place for people of color. And part of that as you said, was the mentoring of graduate students of color. Uh, Lahoma Thomas, whose dissertation she supervised, wrote about her mentorship in a recent piece in PS Political Science, and I encourage everyone to read that. In terms of my own work, uh, my research largely focuses on intergroup violence, drawing from the case of Indonesia, and I've also written a little bit on interpretive methods, and both of these areas really are heavily influenced by Leanne's advice. And so all facets of her work are an inspiration to me. And really, her impact is, I think, very clear in the ways that she influenced my dissertation. I remember just like four months before she passed, sitting in her office and basically just being really sad and miserable about the dissertation and telling her that I didn't really believe in, in the project and in what I was writing. And I remember really the ways that she asked me what exactly I was interested in. And, you know, I completely ended up abandoning, not completely, it's still in there, but what I had written so far, which was about three chapters and focusing on an alternative argument, which is now the basic strands of the book project as it is. And so she had such an important impact on the project. Yeah, I had a bit of a different way to begin my relationship and friendship and mentorship from Leanne in that she wasn't formally on my dissertation committee and I, I never actually took a class with her, but I came to know her just before she started teaching at the University of Toronto in 2011. And I met her because she was due to teach a class at the Mississauga campus of the U of T on, a, on global politics. And I gather that she'd reached out to some people in the department in hopes that they could put her in touch with somebody who had TA'd the class before so she could get some insight into what worked and what didn't work with the class and so on. So I actually met Leanne through the department to chat to her about the, that course because I TA'd it a number of times in the year or two prior. And from that conversation, she asked if I'd serve as kind of a head TA for the course. So we kind of began what I guess we could see as a, a kind of good working relationship pretty early on when she joined Toronto. And then I think it expanded into a real mentorship and friendship. And from 2011 onwards, I ITA'd for her every year and worked as her uh, research assistant across a number of projects. So my kind of relationship with her is a, a little bit different because it was in these kind of less than formal supervisory channels. But as Jessica's already said, she had a really profound impact on my thinking, my doctoral work, and my work since then. And I, and I really think on my professional and even personal development more generally. She was an incredibly generous mentor, even to someone like me, who she had no formalized supervisory role over. As, as Jessica mentioned, I think she and I, and now Professor Lahoma Thomas as well, and, and other students who worked with her across a whole, whole whole range of topics, she really kind of pushed us to think about questions around methodology and, and build it into really diverse research projects. So my, my research is actually on diplomatic communities of practice in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and other organizational settings. So quite far from 
Leanne's expertise, but she was really formatively important in how I approach my doctoral work and my work now, which which draws heavily on interview research. So I, I think I really owe her a, a debt of generosity and uh, gratitude for her generosity and commitment. Well, one of the things that you picked up on both is how she had this kind of reassuring presence that when Jessica, when your enthusiasm for your tasks was flagging, you found that Leanne provided you with not only intellectual, but also moral and I, I gather emotional resources that you need to get things going again. And, and Ari, you spoke to her generosity and the way that she helped to talk you through your concerns. My own experience with her was shorter than both of you. I really only knew her in the last year or so of her life. I had the opportunity to spend time with her at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And I'd looked forward, as I'm sure you did, to an enduring relationship and, and friendship with her. And indeed, I'd actually taken up uh, seriously a suggestion that she had made to me, perhaps a little bit flippantly, that I invite her to come to Australia. But it was really the time that we spent together there that led me to think about how her person filled the places that she occupied intellectually in ways that were profoundly important. And, and this, I think, is one of the features that, to my mind, comes out with this book. Perhaps to, to turn to the contents of the book now, how her notion of relational interviewing is so much imbued with her humanist ethos. Um, would either of you like to, to comment on that? My immediate response there is that the humanist ethos, the very kind of social, dynamic, human-oriented approach to the, the method as outlined in the book is very much Leanne across different arrays of the, the hats that she wore professionally and, and personally. As the book notes, kind of one of the animating impulses reflecting on her time as uh, a theater instructor um, and treating her interactions as a kind of engaged performance. And from working with her in a teaching assistant capacity, it was clear that's how she taught. And if anybody had the pleasure of seeing her speak at conferences and, and such. You saw her kind of performance in that way as well. But on, on the kind of human interaction side of things, she was in, incredibly engaged, incredibly generous, but that she was also uh, give some of the hardest, most instructive, but challenging feedback and had such a depth of engagement. I would also say that foundationally as part of her mentorship, but also her approach to research was that she recognized that you're a fully human person and that the bodies that we occupy shape our experiences as well. So Leanne was definitely the person that I went to whenever I experienced a microaggression at the university or at conferences. And she always, I think, would listen very well. Her truly profound ability to, to listen and to read between the lines was what made her such a, an incredible researcher, but also such an incredible teacher and mentor. And can we build on that then in thinking about this relational approach? So what does it entail? How does relational interviewing differ from other interview methods? There are plenty of books on interview methods in the market. Why do we need another one? Is there something about the quality of her listening that you've just spoken to, Jessica, that makes the practice of relational interviewing different from other methods? Well, she kind of identifies that listening is, is really core to what relational interviewing is all about. Because 
she sees relational interviewing as a process, right, where data is co-produced by dialogue and interaction between interviewer and interviewee. And part of this interaction means that data is inseparable from the humanity of, of both the interviewer and interviewee. And I think it's this recognition of the humanity of those involved that the principles and ingredients of relational interviewing arise. And she says that the humanity of the interviewee and the interviewer asks us to be reflexive of of positionality. And then it's that recognition of, of humanness that asks us to treat the interviewee as agents who are deserving of dignity and respect. In terms of kind of the book's broader appeal to your question of why would we need or want this book? Well, for a slim volume of 100 pages, I think it's it's a fantastic reader on the practical side of, of kind of putting that humanist ethos, putting a commitment to the interpretive methodological underpinnings of this particular method into practice. As you've Jessica and Nick, you've already highlighted one of the core elements, the practical elements, as Leanne describes in the book, is this active listening, interrogating those silences, examining why different truths may be presented to you, amongst other things that we can we can discuss there. And I think that one of the, the key values of this book is, is its ability to speak to very precise, practical contexts. One thing that, that I forgot to mention, and what is really, I think, core to the book, to kind of build off what Ari was saying, is this idea that imperfection is a part of being human. And one thing that I found so valuable about this book is the ways that Leanne emphasizes how mistakes can also be useful for your project, right? And that making mistakes is just a part of what the whole fieldwork endeavor looks like, and that's okay. And in some ways, it releases us as researchers from the stress and the anxiety of having to do everything according to this this research plan before we arrive into the field. And so it's such a reassuring book in this way. Would either of you like to give examples of how advice from Leanne about learning from your mistakes contributed to your own thinking about the interviews that you did in the field? Well, I immediately think of, I referenced how early in my first research trip abroad doing interviews for the very first time and feeling absolutely overwhelmed. It was Leanne, not necessarily a member of my committee, who I turned to for some help and reassurance. And I think it's actually mentioned in the book, it was a blunder of mine where I discussed I had used some international relations constructivist jargon to, to, to introduce the, the topic of conversation with somebody who had studied and had a PhD or a master's in international relations. And the whole interview just sunk into this jargon. And I, I just felt like I completely sunk the one hour or two I was able to have with this person. And I, I was talking to Leanne and telling her about how poorly it went. And her reaction was just, wow, Ari, great. You know, and then we started talking about why it went awry and what could be gleaned from the language that was used. And it was just on the one hand, so comforting and reassuring that this didn't mean the project was sunk or I was a failure. And on the other hand, that there were ways to gleam interesting insights into that particular interaction, even if it didn't unfold as I'd intended it. And even if it didn't generate the kind of lines of inquiry in line with the research question as I had envisioned it, it was still a, a productive exchange. Yeah, definitely in terms of of me, the one thing that really reminded me of was this idea of the working relationship. So 
I remember having an interview with a religious leader that had been very, very challenging to get. And I knew from the moment that I had arrived that he wasn't going to be a fan of me for whatever reason, right? Whether it was my social location, the fact that he probably perceived a lot of researchers to be particularly liberal or left-wing compared to, to his position. It felt like the interview was like pulling teeth. And I remember feeling, you know, super depressed about it. I wrote to Leanne about the whole thing. And she was like, what didn't he want to talk to? Like that the silences are also data as well. And so that would be one example of her willingness to see so many things count as data. You know, she had a very broad idea of what data could be. Yes. At one point, she writes in the book that from a relational standpoint, all answers are on topic. I suppose the question that arises, though, is then that, well, what are you supposed to do with that as an interviewer? It gives you some reassurance that no matter what is happening, you are generating data. But surely some interviews elicit more topical information than others. What kinds of interpretive work do you do with data that you've generated, which is not the data that you've expected, but nevertheless is not irrelevant because, after all, you have generated it. Well, the one thing that I think Leanne emphasizes throughout the book is reflexivity, right? And the willingness to continuously revisit your research design and continuously reflect on what the interview is giving you. And I think As I was rereading the book, one of the most valuable parts of the book, and that really rung true to me, is that you don't know what's going to be relevant. There was so many interviews that I thought, well, I got nothing out of that interview in that moment, but it was only you know a year after I'd left in the field doing the analysis that I realized that I was wrong. And the complete opposite was true as well. There were interviews that I thought, wow, that interview went really well but I ended up not using that data. In the field, even if you feel like the interview didn't go well, it's important to figure out what you learned from that experience. And in doing so, it's all about incorporating time to reflect about this learning process. I think Jessica put that really well, that from kind of a reflexive standpoint, it's interrogating what was said, what wasn't said, and how or if you can make use of it if you can draw meaning out of that. But in the book, she also describes how all of those interactions, they might not fit exactly, they might not be entirely immediately relevant to how the research question was in your mind at that that particular interview. But it, it does lead to a whole host of other things. So deeper insight into some particular dynamics, helping to draw some linkages across topics or themes as she describes. So there's different ways to view the outcome of these interviews. So you're both coming back to this key term, reflexivity, and you yourselves have both written on what you've referred to as active reflexivity. What do you mean by that? And how does this usage and your own interest in reflexivity find itself informed by Leanne's relational approach? Our relatively recent PS article on active reflexivity is, was, was generated through discussions that we'd had independently and then together with Leanne over. I think Jessica correct me, but I think over many years in the end, both again in independent ways and then and then together, because it was Leanne who suggested that we bring our very different experiences interviewing in, in, for very different projects together to think about some of the methodological questions and problems and concerns 
we both arrived uh, at independently. So in that article, we, we really build on one of the core components of relational interviewing, which is this deep and we think active commitment to reflexivity. And we parse out building from the lessons from this book and others to think through how you can integrate a kind of continual and active reflexivity in the research process across all the many steps, which of course are not linear, but to think through from research design to accessing participants, to conducting interviews, to uh, generating knowledge based on those conversations. And as, as Jessica pointed out, to revisiting this down the road as well. So in, in our piece, we describe active reflexivity as kind of a, a triple movement of thinking about one's own positionality. And this book has a great reader on what positionality is and the different dynamics we can think about in that regard. So thinking about your own positionality, how that might be read by participants in your interview research or other research uh, across different contexts and, and over time, and then thinking about the conclusions you drew from those connections and trying to keep this at the forefront of the research process uh, across all those stages. Yeah, I would agree. I think one of the key insights in chapter two, I believe it is, is this idea that identities are intersectional and it's hard to predict. She writes what combination of traits will matter, right? And part of the conversations that I had with Leanne that eventually led her to suggest that Ari and I write together because we both were doing interviews in Jakarta and in Indonesia during that time was this idea that I would tell her about all of these different interviews that I did. And I would, you know, say, oh, I think it's because I'm Chinese, or it's because I'm not a Muslim. And this is why that happened. And Leanne would always say, well, how do you know that? Right? And I think it was this questioning that made me realize that, you know, maybe it wasn't the fact that I was, you know, ethnically Chinese Indonesian, it could also be the way that the participant responded to me was an outcome of the fact that I am Canadian or the fact that I'm younger than the person was, or, you know, I was classed differently than them. And so the conversations that I, we had with Leanne, she was the one who pushed us to think actively about reflexivity. You make a really interesting point in that article, which goes to one of the subheads in the book on insider-outsider relations. And you were touching on it there, Jessica, if you would like to develop it a little bit more, because I think that this sort of notion of getting inside, as it were, is something that many interpretivist scholars, certainly uh, emerging scholars, are pushed to think about. But Leanne is saying that, well, being inside is not necessarily advantageous. And you yourself, of course, uh, thinking about how this binary can be problematized. And if you attend to it carefully, you can really work with it in productive and important ways as a researcher. And conversely, if you just sort of take for granted some crude conception of what it means to be inside or outside, it can have adverse consequences for the research process as well, right? I would say that, you know, one of Leanne's gifts is the fact that she, you know, not just in this book and in her approach to interviewing, but also it's so evident in her Killing Neighbors book, which covers the genocide in Rwanda, where she really problematizes rigid categories, right? And one of the important things that she talks about is that people are insiders and outsiders in different ways. And elites and non-elites in different ways. And she really breaks 
that down. And she sort of challenges the idea that one thing is better than the other. And in my own identity, I'm Indonesian by heritage, but I'm also ethnically Chinese and also non-Muslim. And that's a very ambiguous sort of position to be in. I'm also obviously raised outside of Indonesia in Canada. And so I saw that in, in many ways as a negative at first because of the way that my ethnic minority and religious minority status was located in the Indonesian context. But Leanne would always say that there are always trade-offs, right? And that one is not naturally better than the other and that those assumptions need to be unpacked. Jessica, Ari, let's take a short break here for a sponsor's announcement. And when we come back, we'll discuss some more aspects of the relational interviewing research process, Leanne's next book, and also yours. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheeseman, in conversation with Jessica Sugiogo and Ari Glass on Lee Ann Fuji's Interviewing in Social Science Research. In the last half of the discussion, we were talking a lot about positionality and reflexivity in the relational interviewing approach. I want to try and catch a little bit more on what this means in practice and how this approach differs from others that might be available to a scholar thinking about how they conduct their interviews. We've touched on your active listening, learning through one's missteps. We haven't much yet spoken about the relationship between all of this and treating people with dignity, although I think that that's been a part of our conversation, which is been tacit, if not explicit. And I'm wondering how then that attention to dignity makes this approach different from those that, say, a positivist may recommend to their students. Wouldn't, let's say, a non-interpretivist say that, well, they also listen actively and that, for instance, they go through institutional review boards or research ethics boards. And as a result of that, there's some assurance that they'll treat people with dignity. Isn't that adequate? Well, I would say that, you know, what Leanne is trying to articulate is that, yes, IRBs or REBs are important, but we need to go beyond that in many ways, that we need to think about our participants, our research assistants, our interlocutors as fully human. And I think reflexivity being core to that helps us treat others with greater dignity. And I think her discussion about consent is really instructive in this. In particular, she really emphasizes how being aware of power dynamics, of the intersectional nature of identity, how that helps us get informed consent, right? And so when she's talking about, for example, her funnel interviewing method, where she first interviews a broad range of people and then chooses other people to interview each time, like a narrower subsection of people to interview during each round of interviewing, she talks about how often 
people got frustrated with her because of the ways that she constantly sort of re- uh, re-emphasized and redid the consent process. And so I think that really comes out of her understanding of her participants as fully human, as deserving of respect and dignity, and as co-producers of knowledge. So that's one way I think that her emphasis on, on dignity and the, and the humanity of participants is really special and, and unique. And I would also say that this idea of, of treating participants as fully human, Leanne doesn't just say this for the participants and interviewees. She also mentions it as an important part of working with research assistants. And this is something that I've talked with her a lot because I had to work with research assistants when I was doing field work. And like they didn't interpret for me or anything, but my social location as a woman, as a non-Muslim, as a sort of ethnic minority pushed me to work with research assistants. And in many ways, the positionality of research assistants was something that Leanne and I talked about a lot. And she does write a little bit about this in the ways that, you know, treating your research assistants as fully human, acknowledging the power dynamics that you have as an employer, you know, and and the ways that being aware of these things are really um, also shape the research process as well. Yes, she does, doesn't she? And I remember first reading Killing Neighbours, how she really foregrounds the presence of research assistants and interpreters in that text as well, in her preliminary chapter on the fieldwork methods, where a lot of the contents are the kinds of contents that we're advised or by inclination tend, especially in the first book, to stick into an appendix, right? They're things that you want to have noted somewhere for an interested reader, but you don't foreground. And yet here is Leanne doing exactly the opposite, <laughs> as also want, insisting that research assistants and interpreters be put up front along with her as part of the research process. And she's doing this not just by way of acknowledgement of the presence of these participants to say, well, thank you very much for coming along and being involved. It's also that she's trying to make a point about, as you were saying previously, about co-generation of data in the interview process and the implications for the interpretations that follow and how highly dependent these are on the working relationship with assistants and interpreters, which, as I said already, is so often occluded or pushed into the closing sections of a book rather than put at the outset. Exactly. And I would say that what I found in my own work was that giving autonomy to my research assistant, you know, and treating her as as an agent who knows her own social location and knows her own context, given that she's a local, really help the project along, right? It's asking different questions that I would ask that end up being crucial information provided for my for the book project. And so I think being attentive to those dynamics, which I probably wouldn't have um, paid as closely to those dynamics without sort of Leanne's guidance and also the work that she had done in Rwanda, I think my project would have, you know, been lesser for it. Jessica, in the previous half of the discussion, you also alluded to an experience you had in an interview setting where you were encouraged by Leanne to think about the data you generated as data that was worth dwelling on and working with. But another aspect of that setting that struck me was that it sounded like you had a difficulty there with rapport. 
And this is something also that Leanne warns us about from the outset of this book, about the limits, the possibilities, but also the limits of rapport as an interview strategy. Why does she do that? And how did it help you, again, to think through your own experiences as a researcher? Well, I would say that her conceptualization of working relationship versus rapport is so important for, I guess, many different kinds of work. But in my case, for researching political violence, rapport sort of suggests that there needs to be a kind of harmony as well as a kind of closeness in in, in that relationship, right? And often when you're interviewing people who carry out acts of violence or are hardliners or of any kind, if you pretend to agree with them, you know, is that being inauthentic, you know, not treating them as fully human. And so for me, it was almost liberating to, to have the idea that yes, I could, that something productive could come out of disagreement, um, that I didn't have to, you know, pretend to also to suppress sort of my point of view and perspectives And I also think it was also liberating because, you know, sometimes you can't get that kind of closeness in terms of, you know, because of my social location. So I would always be quite envious of male field researchers who could, you know, hang out all night with with the people that I wish to interview. But what Leanne was is is saying that, you know, harmony and closeness associated with rapport isn't necessary. What's important is, is that you can develop a working relationship, which is that you can sort of work towards generating data together that is helpful and um, yields insights into the into what you want to be studying. And so, yeah, there were many times in my field work where um, I didn't have rapport, and that was due to a variety of things. But I was able to establish a working relationship, including the example that I gave previously. Ari, it sounds like the IR jargon-laden interview that you mentioned to us previously was a case perhaps of rapport having negative consequences. Was that the case? And did you have other experiences that gave you cause to reflect upon the limits of rapport to which Leanne draws our attention? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily even describe it as a negative experience. It was a, an important moment of learning for me and, and still valuable, as, as we noted, too thinking through knowledge about the, the topic and, and the, that interaction more generally. But in, in thinking about this a little bit, I was just, I was thinking through the other element that I think Leanne stresses that is one of the limits of rapport is the assumption that as soon as you have that kind of friendly or harmonious relationship with one of your participants, that that's sufficient to assume you've got both kind of productive and fruitful relationship, but also an ethical one. And mm-hmm. Leanne's keen to suggest that that's not the case, and that we need to approach this this guiding principle of ethical treatment of participants from that foundation, from that humanist ethos, and from our commitment to reflexivity. So in thinking through my own experiences here, I, I'm confident that I've had a reasonable rapport with many of the people I've interacted with. But building from Leanne's kind of caution here is not to assume that that means I'm engaged in either a kind of, again, productive or fruitful, or importantly, an ethical relationship but to continually address the role of power and privilege, the role of positionality in those interactions. And I think that that's a really valuable insight to take away. And one of the reasons why she suggests we think less about aspiring towards rapport and instead 
look for these ethical working relationships that are built on this, this commitment to reflexivity. Well, there's a lot more to discuss on strategies. In the interest of time, I'd like to turn to the topic that arises relatively late in the book, which is what to do once the interview data have been generated. What does Leanne advise us about analyzing interview data in ways that achieve social scientific goals that are concerned with the identification of patterns, with causal inference, and with statements of truth consistent with an interpretivist epistemology and methodology? This is we're returning to chapter five of the book, which again is just a, an excellent and practical statement as to the kinds of things we should be looking for and how we as researchers should be thinking about the data we've, the knowledge we've co-generated with our participants. And as you've said, Nick, I think it's really a, it's a statement as to how we can uncover meanings from the interactions. And Leanne gives us a whole host of, of suggestions for how to confront the knowledge that we've generated. I found it incredibly valuable to think through the idea of gaps and silences in interviews, what is not said to interrogate some of those those pauses, the broader metadata of silences and half-truths and so on that, that are there. And, and the book gives us some, some ways forward in that, some ways of thinking through, of uncovering the different causal logics that people are articulating, of, of, of exploring the different truths that might seem contradictory when we look at our interview transcripts or coming back to Jessica's point, when we look at them years after perhaps the original interaction and try to think through and make sense of the, the different truths we see there. What Ari was saying in terms of the different kinds of truth, I think that's such an interesting and important intervention, right? So oftentimes, if you look at the topic of, of lies in interview research from a positivist perspective, you would basically say, well, that information is useless and we can't really learn anything from it. And Leanne approaches it in such a different way in understanding, you know, what does this untruth say about people's understanding of the world, right? Maybe these lies are about social status, or maybe these lies can tell us what the the participant or interviewee aspires to or an understanding of what should have happened. And another thing that I thought was really helpful from that chapter is to think about positionality and ethics. And one thing that really struck out to me is, and just was a, was a comfort to me, given sort of my social location in the field, was this idea that if individuals are willing to talk to you or not willing to talk to you, that's only because of what you do and your ability to generate a working relationship, but often that's not the case. And so, you know, often access and the ability to build rapport is a result of social location. And so that was one point that I wish that she had written more about. On the point about truth, I suppose to some listeners, the risk here may be that we start to sound like we're talking about truth being relative and in a time of truthiness, in an age in which truth is being questioned in a variety of different ways and for a variety of different political purposes. Is there a danger of doing interpretive work that undermines the idea of, as Arendt would have it, factual truths? How does Leanne insist on the possibility of multiple truths but rescue us from that danger? I don't think Leanne is saying, take everything and don't be critical about it, right? So she, what she articulates in this chapter is saying that she recognizes when someone is saying, you know, an untruth. She recognizes that the woman that she was interviewing in Rwanda, I think that was one of her examples 
where she was telling fantastical stories that couldn't have been true. And Leanne reports it as, you know, not happening and that they were probably imagined. But what she says is that even in the midst of acknowledging that these are not facts, she argues that she's telling these stories because she feels that she wants her suffering to be acknowledged, right? And so it's not that Leanne is saying we have to accept everything that's being said by the participants, but that they can tell us certain things about how people see the world and imagine the world. Just to echo that, I think the suggestion is not to take all truths and present them as such, but to treat the truths you get as as narratives and stories worthy of interrogating, not to just discount them as something fanciful or something concocted, but to interrogate why that was the case and what that tells you about the meaning that your participants are ascribing to events or their role in the world more generally and so on. I think that that's a really important way of countering the the truthiness to to look at why people would invent or or supply rumors, provide denials, evade answers, give silences, how they attempt to present meaning in a particular way uh, or truth in a particular way as a way of interrogating the motivations, the power and the privileges behind that. The book was published and Leanne passed away, Ari, Jessica, before the coronavirus pandemic. And we know that this pandemic has had really dramatic consequences for how we think about social scientific interview data generation. In the preface to the book, Leanne says, like all of us not anticipating the pandemic, and almost in passing, that she assumes as an author that the reader, the researcher, is doing interviews in person and not via a telephone or via the internet link up. Having said that, she adds that much the same methods as the book outlines can be applied through, for instance, internet interviewing, but there are going to be more challenges and also possibly some advantages. I suppose that were she still with us and was able to work on a second edition, she might choose to or have chosen to say more about this and perhaps she might have written a section or sections of the book on telephone and internet interviewing, but as she is not with us and and cannot speak to this, I'd like to ask the two of you about what you think the possibilities and limitations of relational interviewing are in the age of the coronavirus pandemic. Funnily enough, I actually remember having a conversation about this very topic with Leanne when she was revising the book and responding to comments from Devorah and Perry. Because metadata is such a crucial part of, of relational interviewing. I think Leanne originally um, had emphasized the value of in-person interviewing, but I think as she thought about it, as evidenced by her discussion on phone interviewing, she recognized instances where the choice to do an internet interview or a phone interview might be advantageous. In all honesty, I think knowing the value that Leanne placed on treating participants with dignity and respect. I think there's no way that Leanne would advocate any kind of field work that would risk someone getting sick from COVID. And, you know, and we can all see that from, from the book itself. And I think what she would say, and I think what she frequently brings up in the book, including in the preface, is that all decisions have benefits and drawbacks, and it's not you know necessarily better or worse. You just get different kinds of of information. And just like on the ground, you might have to adapt who you select as interviewees um, or the questions that are possible to be asked. 
So yes, relational interviewing through Zoom is mediated, but you know, you're still engaged in this process of the co-generation of knowledge and there's still metadata to be gathered. Certainly, I don't think she would deny that there are drawbacks, you know, in particular, I'm thinking who can be interviewed, who, you know, has a great internet connection. I think this is a huge problem or obstacle in the case of Indonesia, which is the country that I study. But I think she would still very much see the value of adapting or altering your question or perhaps, you know, thinking what are the topics that are could be studied through this method. To my mind, I think this is an excellent book for thinking through how to do online interviews, not quite as uh, practically oriented as the in-person interviews that it's, it's geared towards, but it gives us so much to think about, as Jessica was just suggesting, in terms of, well, who in the first place can be interviewed in this way? Who will be privileged and silenced by the medium we're now all, uh, we're all taking advantage of by necessity? And then it gets us thinking through well, how can we interrogate the effects of these mediated mediums we're using? How can we engage in in active listening? What new lexicons, languages do we need to adopt to be able to kind of navigate these interactions? Similarly, when they go wrong, we've got ways forward to learn through those missteps if we listen to uh, some of Leanne's suggestions in this book. I also think it's really useful because much of the discussion in, around COVID is how, coming back to what, what Jessica said, well, of course, Leanne would suggest n- no travel and inter- interaction that will put you know yourself, but the participants at risk. There's ethical obligations. From hearing about students going on with their work or questions about, quote unquote, outsourcing some of this. And again, I think the relational interviewing gives us a way of thinking through and kind of critiquing the assumption that we can play a kind of managerial role over research and instead to think reflexively about our interactions with different interlocutors and their interactions with participants and so on. Jessica, Ari, normally we conclude these discussions with a question to the author about what they've been working on since their book was published and what we can look forward to next. And in fact, as we've alluded to a couple of times, Leanne does have another book coming out, doesn't she? Can you tell us about it? Can, I, can, I can go ahead and, and say a few things about it. Um, she does indeed have a book coming out. Um, thanks to her immense efforts prior to her passing and then that of the community of scholars around her, including uh, Martha Finnamore. It's entitled Showtime. It's a book exploring performative violence across a number of different cases from Rwanda to Bosnia to uh, the eastern shore of Maryland. I'm only slightly familiar with it myself, having done some work with her years and years and years ago now on the Eastern Shore case in Maryland, along with her amazing research assistant, Linda Dwyer. But perhaps Jessica has other, other things to say about the book. To be honest, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about the book. I've just been listening to the talk that she gave at SICE about it over and over again. And so I'm just really excited to be able to read it once again. And I believe that it's coming out in the fall, in September, if I'm not mistaken, and is edited by Martha Finmore. And I think Libby Wood also has written a little bit about it as well. Like There's a part that she contributes. You're you're right that Elizabeth Wood is writing the epilogue or has written the epilogue for it. And what a marvelous tribute to Leanne, isn't it? That two scholars of such incredible quality and with such tremendous reputations have taken the time to work on this. And like you, I can say I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. One of my fondest memories of the last few days that I spent together with Leanne, in fact, was late in our fellowships at 
Princeton when we went over a number of the chapters together also with Nick Rush-Smith. And again, I just had that experience with Leanne of her being so incredibly engaged and intensely concerned with all of the suggestions that we had to offer and to be thinking so late in the process of writing the manuscripts still about the real possible reorganization of contents and how the different parts did their work and what the comparisons were for. To me, it was just such an example of a scholar of, of the the finest quality at work. And, and those are memories that I'll certainly treasure. And, and for those reasons as well, I'm looking forward to the book. It'll be really great to just hear her voice once again. And isn't that the evidence of a writer of such talent as Leanne, that as you read the book, you do literally hear the author's voice? On that note, I'd like to ask you both also, what is it that you're working on now? And uh, what can we look forward to reading from the both of you? Maybe Ari can go first, because I think his book is probably going to come up much earlier than mine. <laughs> I don't know about that, but knock, knock on wood. I, I've got a book based on the uh, the dissertation work from many years ago that's under review. That's a comparative analysis of diplomatic responses to conflict in Southeast Asia and South America, relying on what I think is really interesting interview research with uh, with diplomats in each case and uh, and work that Leanne has looked over and, and helped quite a while ago now. So hope to, to move that forward and at the same time still doing some more work building on some of the the ideas we just explored and some of the work with uh, with Jessica on elite interviewing doing reflexivity in elite contexts uh, is something I'm really interested in as well I'm currently working on turning my dissertation into a book and we'll see how long that takes <laughs> the book itself asks why groups that are less than one percent of the national population becomes targets of, of mobilization and state repression despite their political and economic insignificance. And like I was sharing at the beginning, this puzzle, you know, really emerged out of that formative meeting that I had with Leanne about four months before she passed. And I just felt so reinvigorated working on it. And I still, you know, really believe in the project. And a lot of that really comes down to her mentorship. So I hope that, you know, when it does come out, that it will live up to what she hoped it could be. And I dare say that we'll hear whispers of her voice in the backgrounds of both of your books as well. Ari Glass, Jessica Sudogo, thank you very much for coming on to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to discuss interviewing in social science research by Leanne Fuji. Thanks so much thank for so much. having us. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you found this episode interesting, then I'm sure you'll also enjoy listening to the previous episodes of the series with authors of books discussing interpretive methodologies, namely Devorah Yano and Perry Schwartzschey on interpretive research design, Fred Schaefer on elucidating social science concepts, and most recently, Mark Beaver and Jason Blakely on their interpretive social science. You can find those interviews and the other episodes in the series to date with Lisa Wedeen, James Scott, and Sarah Weeb on the website or wherever you get your podcasts via the new Books in Political Science channel.